0: We're studying together this afternoon the Belgic Confession, Article 19. It's found on page 62 in our Three Forms of Unity. And it's entitled, The Union and Distinction of the Two Natures in the Person of Christ. We believe that by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Yet each nature retains its own distinct properties. As then, the divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. So also has the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, and retaining all the properties of a real body. And though he has, by his resurrection, given immortality to the same, nevertheless he has not changed the reality of his human nature, for as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. Therefore that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father, was a real human spirit departing from his body. But in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave. And the Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. Wherefore, we confess that he is very God and very man very God by his power to conquer death, and very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen that there is a kind of order of salvation in these articles of the Belgic Confession that deal with the doctrine of salvation. Beginning in Article 16, we have the doctrine of election, so we trace the Uh, Salvation that our God has given to us to his eternal counsel. The second article of the Confession, Article 17, deals with the promise of God to uh, his people in the Old Testament concerning that salvation. And that promise, of course, was first spoken to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. The third step in the order of salvation then is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and that the confession deals with in two articles. The first article is uh, the article that deals with the incarnation itself, that is the coming of the eternal Son of God into our flesh. And the second article then deals with the subject of the union and distinction of the two natures in the person of Christ. So it's the article that explains how those two natures, the divine and the human natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, are united in his person. We're going to look at three things in this article. First, that union itself. Then some characteristics of that union. And finally, the purpose of that union. We're going to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the union itself. This union is called, in dogmatics, the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, that's a complicated word, or sounds like a complicated word, but what is meant by that is uh, simply the personal union of the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of this union is, first of all, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ has two natures. He has a divine nature, and he has a human nature. He is both God and man. And these two natures are obviously united. They're not separate from each other, they're united. And the question then is, what is it that unites these two natures? And the answer which the church has given in the past, and which I believe is the biblical answer to that question, is that it is the person that unites the natures. We have one nature and one person, The nature that we have, all have, is a human nature. We have that in common. We also have a person, and that person is what makes each of our natures unique. It's what gives to each of us his distinct character. Well, Christ has two natures, these two natures united by one person. He is one person, just as you and I are one person but one person with two natures. It is the person, then, of the Lord Jesus Christ that unites the two natures. And that person that unites the two natures is the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, the Son of God, eternally begotten, of the Father, before the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. The eternal Son of God, then, unites in his one person both the divine and the human natures. And this union is very close. We're going to look into that in detail as we look at the rest of the article. The article, though, summarizes what we've just been saying with the very first words of the article and very uh, few words, the first couple of lines only. We believe that by this conception, that is the conception of the Virgin Mary, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. These two natures are so closely united that some people have referred to Christ, have used for Christ the name, the God-man. And you will quite often hear that language. I do not care for the language myself. I do not care for the language, first of all, because it's not a biblical name that's given to him. You don't find that name in the scriptures. And I don't care for it because it tends to suggest, I think, that Christ is some kind of third nature. By the union of these two natures, we have a kind of third kind of nature that is both divine and human. So I would prefer not to use the name. Nevertheless, there is this very close union between the two natures of Christ by means of the one divine person. The next thing that we want to look at then is at some of the characteristics of that union. And our confession uh, says uh, describes really two characteristics of that union. The first of those characteristics is described in the rest of paragraph 1 of the article. Each nature, the article says, retains its own distinct properties. So what the confession is saying is that when these two natures are united, the divine and human natures, neither one loses the properties that belong to the nature As then the divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. So it refers to three attributes of the divine nature, that that divine nature is self-existing, uncreated. That that divine nature is eternal, has no beginning of days or end of life, and that that divine nature is infinite, fills heaven and earth. And what the confession is saying is that when the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ was united with his human nature, those properties of the divine nature were not lost. It remained self-existing, eternal, and infinite. But just as the divine nature remained Uh, the same in its union with the human nature, so also the human nature was not changed by its union with the divine nature. So the human nature, so also, the confession says, has the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature. That is, it is not self-existent and did not become self-existent by its union with the divine nature. It has a beginning of days. And that beginning of days was in the incarnation of the the work of the Spirit by conceiving him in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is a finite nature. It retains all the properties of a real body. So the human nature remains a real human nature with the properties of a human Nature. Now we should note at this point, I think, that the Lutherans have actually taught that the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ did take on at least some of the properties of the divine nature, particularly the omnipresence of the divine nature. They speak of the ubiquity Of the human nature. And that word ubiquity means basically the same thing as omnipresence. They speak of the ubiquity of the human nature. And they speak of this ubiquity of the human nature. Because they have this doctrine of the Lord's Supper. In which they teach that the real flesh and blood of Christ are present. With the elements of the Lord's Supper. We confess that the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted to heaven and sits at the right hand of God and that he is not present with us here in this world according to his human nature. He is present with us according to his divine nature and by his Holy Spirit. But his human nature is locally in heaven. That's why he spoke to his disciples of going away from them. And when he said, I will return to you, he did not say, I will return to you, first of all, in the flesh, but I will return to you in the spirit by the third person of the Trinity whom he sends to dwell in our hearts. So the confession talks then in the first place about these two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ being united in the one person retain their unique properties. The divine nature retains its unique properties. The human nature retains its unique properties. They are essentially unchanged. Now the confession also points out that the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ obviously did change. It changed from the moment of his birth to the time that he grew to be a man, of course. It changed also when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead with a glorified body, and that body is now a changed body. It's changed according to the rule that our Apostle, that the Apostle Paul uh, talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is there talking about the resurrection of our bodies and how our our bodies will change in that resurrection. Verses 42 and following. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Our Lord Jesus Christ had a corruptible body, a body that would return to the dust if left in the grave. But it was raised... In incorruption. it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This was all true of our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. His body was raised in incorruption, in glory, in power, and as a spiritual body. And it is only because his body has changed that our bodies also will change when we are raised from the dead and taken to glory to be with him. But the essence of the human nature remains the same. It's the same human nature with which he was born, not changed in its essence. So the confession says, and though he has by his resurrection given immortality to the same, nevertheless he has not changed the reality of his human nature, for as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. So that's the first characteristic of that union, that the natures, the two natures, remain essentially unchanged by that union. The divine remains divine and the human remains human. The second characteristic of that union is described in the second paragraph. And the basic characteristic described there is the inseparability of these two natures. And what the confession means by this is that Once those two natures were joined in the uh, Holy Spirit's work in the womb of the Virgin Mary, they never again became separated and remain still united today as he sits at the right hand of God. They were not, the confession says, even separated by his death. When he died... He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So his spirit, or his soul, was separated from his body. His soul went immediately into the presence of his Father. His body was laid in the grave. But the confession says the divine nature was not separated from his body even when it laid in the grave. And we may add to that, was not separated from his human soul when it was exalted to heaven. So it says this, these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. Therefore, that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father was a real human spirit departing from his body. But in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human even when he lay in the grave. And the Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. The divine and human natures of our Lord Jesus Christ then remain inseparably united, as he is exalted now to sit at the right hand of his Father. Those are the two characteristics that our confession talks about. I want also to refer this afternoon to the Creed of Chalcedon, which was written in 451 AD. This is a creed which is about the Incarnation especially. It is not one of our official creeds. We have six official creeds, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, And then um, three of what we call the ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The Creed of Chalcedon is not one of those creeds, but it does have some important things to say, and there's one particular uh, phrase in it that I want to call attention to. I think the reason, however, that this did not become one of our official creeds is because of One phrase within it, which um, perhaps you can pick out as I read through the creed. I'm going to read the whole creed here. It's very short. And uh, you see if you can pick out the phrase that is objectionable. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood. Truly God, and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. And your ears should have pricked up at that phrase, the Mother of God. Here is why we do not adopt this creed. Mary is called the Mother of God. She is not the Mother of God. She was the mother of the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the mother of God of God. But then this, and this is the part of the creed we're specially interested in, one and the same Son, the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So especially that phrase, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and, in, and inseparably that I want to talk about. We've already addressed two of those uh, adverbs, unchangeably, the two natures are not changed by their union, and inseparably, but there are two more there, inconfusably and indivisibly. And that word, inconfusedly, means, I think this, that when the two natures of Christ were united, they weren't, as it were, mixed together to create some kind of third nature. As you might, for example, combine hydrogen and oxygen to create water. It's not what happened when the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ were united. They were inconfusedly united. They remained distinct. Not separated, but distinct. United by the one person. And the other adjective is that adjective, in or adverb, indivisibly. And I think what this means is that we must not imagine that in the incarnation, parts of the human nature were united with parts of a divine nature. And that these then, became our Lord Jesus Christ. Each nature remains complete, undivided, so that he is fully God and fully man. Those are the characteristics then, I think, that we may assign to this union of the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come finally to the purpose of this union. And the purpose of this union is expressed in the very last part of the article. Wherefore, we confess that he is very God and very man, very God by his power to conquer death and very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. He is true God, and as true God, he has the power to conquer death. No creature has the power to conquer death. No creature can sustain the burden of God's wrath in order to deliver us from it. He is true man, so that he may die for us, so that he may be our substitute in the judgment of God bear the penalty of our sins according to the infirmity of his flesh, and perish so that we may live. We may add to this, I think, also, that because the divine and human natures of our Lord Jesus Christ remain united today, we have, as Ephesians, 5, or Ephesians 2 tells us, our flesh in heaven. Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 6. It's a very important promise of the scriptures and guarantee to us of our own glorification. Even when we were dead in trespasses, He, that is God, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have our flesh in heaven, and we sit together with Christ in the heavenly places because His human nature, united with His divine nature, is seated at the right hand of our Father. And, of course, we know that from that position of glory, at the right hand of God, he remains our mediator and intercessor. Our mediator who is God and man in one person, making intercession for us before the throne of God, so that we may obtain all the blessings of his salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, life everlasting, hope and joy, and all good things. The Heidelberg Catechism has an explanation of this also, and I want to turn there by way of closing to Lord's Days 5 and 6, questions and answers 15 to 18. What kind of mediator and redeemer then must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. But one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he also be true God, that by the power of his Godhead he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath, and so obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life? And then one of my favorite questions and answers in the Catechism, but who now is that mediator who in one person is true God and also a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely given unto us for complete redemption and righteousness. Without this incarnation and this inseparable union of the divine and human natures in the person of the Son of God, we would certainly perish, we would have no hope of salvation whatsoever. May God bless us with faith in his word.